0: Welcome
1: to Season 6. Season 6 of This Most Unbelievable Life.
0: I'm Sherry Spiegel.
1: I'm Paul Fitzgerald.
0: We're glad you're here.
1: Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey everybody, Paul here. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, You may be wondering why it is that um, you just hear me right now. This isn't the actual podcast for this week. This is the intro. And uh, we're going to mix it up a little bit with this week's This Most Unbelievable Life podcast. And this is how. Um, The episode you're going to hear today is actually a presentation. It's a recording of a presentation that our co-host, Dr. Sherry Lemire Spiegel, PhD, gave um, at the 42nd Annual Spring Conference on the Teaching of Writing. This was uh, hosted by Old Dominion University on April 16th. And uh, the theme of the conference was Surviving, Scratched Out, Italicized, Thriving in the New Normal. And of course, this was a whole conference um, of English professionals professionals um, sort of gathered around under the conversation of how do we thrive as teachers and especially as writing teachers in um, these COVID days, these days of the pandemic, where all of our faculty colleagues and teachers and everybody were doing such uh, unbelievable pivoting. Um, this was recorded on April 16th, this presentation that you're about to hear. And the title of it is great. The title of it is Ligers and tigons Oh My, Recognizing You're Not a Hybrid, Though Your Classroom May be, and so uh, the the topic of this uh, this presentation that she gave was uh, really interesting. It's um, how do we bring our best selves to the classroom um, with all the conflicting demands that are placed on us, not just in the context of what the class may be, but also, you know, just as professionals in the field of writing and teaching and, uh, professionals in the field of trying to live on this, on this earth. So, but even though this is clearly an academic, uh, minded talk that she gave, um, by an academic for academics, there are little, uh, tidbits and nooks and crannies and little, Informations in there uh, for anyone. I mean, it really is a set of life lessons for anyone trying to get by on this earth. Um, yet, in the context of you know how do you teach writing online um, in the Zoom days with hybrid classes and Zoom classes, and how do we all just sort of get along as we do this? So, um, I would really uh, think it'd be great if you would give this one a listen. It's about a half an hour long. Um, the Q and A at the end has been, uh, taken out of it to maintain the privacy of the people who, um, were listening to this, to this, uh, presentation when it was presented on zoom, um, on April 16th. Um, but we would be happy to answer any questions that you have about it just based on what you hear. So, um, it's the presentation, like I said, it's about a half an hour long, um, and if you have any questions about it or comments, you can go ahead and just uh, just kick them over. And we might be able to recap this and some of the questions to or answers to any questions that somebody might have in the This Most Unbelievable Life newsletter. So as you know, we have a newsletter that uh, comes out once a month, or you may not know that yet. If you don't, we have a newsletter that comes out about once a month. You can sign up for that on the website, www.thismostunbelievablelife.com. And uh, we hope you enjoy this presentation given by Dr. Sherry Lemire Spiegel at the 42nd Annual Spring Conference on the Teaching of Writing. Uh, so yeah, we get out there every once in a while, we do some presentations for some, some groups, some individuals, some organizations, and um, this was a great one. So uh, here it is, without further ado, Dr. Sherry Spiegel.
0: Uh, Yeah, so I was well prepared to tell you that everything that man had said was just a lie, but instead I think I will try to live up to what he has promised uh, as best I can. So to get started, I'm going to uh, share my screen um, and you can You know, there's a couple of different functions where you can choose what you kind of look at while I'm speaking. I like to have the slides up so that I can kind of pace myself and see where I'm at. But, you know, you can choose your own adventure, whether you want to look at me or look at the slides. But today we are going to think about ligers and tigons. In a lot of ways, I begin this presentation um, where your conference theme starts with a quote that in a lot of ways has really just changed my life. So I begin with a quote uh, from a song, and you will see a lot of songs show up throughout our time together today. In 2016, I was going through kind of a a new way of being was emerging within me, I guess. I had, as Kevin had described, I had kind of ran through a lot of things and uh, collected a fair number of accomplishments. I had been an assistant dean at my college for a while. I had taught a lot of students. I had gotten a PhD and I was burning out uh, pretty quickly, actually. Um, And so one of my favorite musicians released this album, Painkillers. And on it, there was a song called A Wonderful Life. And Brian Fallon sings, I don't want to survive. I want a wonderful life. And with that, I kind of started asking what that really meant. Uh, I think I had been in survival mode so long that I'd forgotten that a wonderful life or even a beautiful life was a possibility. And so I started looking for other ways of being um, and so today's presentation uh, speaks kind of exactly to what Kevin has spoke about what I've kind of gone through in terms of a, a metamorphosis, from running head first into all the things um, to pausing and asking what wisdom comes in unlearning uh, as much as learning. And so throughout my time at Old Dominion, throughout my time at Northern Virginia Community College, I've learned a lot about what it means. Uh, to teach, uh, what it means to be an academic, and even what it means to be human. But I've also had to unlearn a lot. And so I really agree with Cleo Wade here where she says our wisdom does not come just from what we learn. It also comes from what we unlearn. And so I want to give us some space today to think about what things we've learned, sure, but also what kinds of things within our society might we do well to unlearn. So in this moment, I want to take a second and ask you to stop. Just stop. My bet is there's someone amongst the 61 of you that are logged on right now. There's at least one of you right now who's multitasking, right? I would be if I were on this call and I weren't talking to you. But I just wanna give you an invitation. Um, Brene Brown talks about this in terms of writing oneself a permission slip. Maybe you are so overwhelmed as we're often are in April, so overwhelmed that you're taking this moment to catch up on a bit of grading. Maybe you're doing a little bit of curriculum work. Uh, Maybe you're getting that email set up uh, to respond to your boss about something that's just so frustrating for you right now. Maybe you're updating your social media. Whatever it may be, I'd love for you to give yourself a permission slip for 10 minutes. Just be here in this moment on this call No other windows open, just here. What's the worst that could happen? If we think we're ready, we'll go on. Where we start is with the idea of slow agency. And so here um, on the screen, I have for you a quote that I really think, even though it's really focused on WPA work, describes what a lot of us feel as teaching um, faculty. Okay, Uh, this idea that there is a felt experience of being physically and mentally overtaken by the enormity of the job and the ostensibly normative status of that experience. And so where I start today is with this idea that if you are feeling physically and mentally overtaken by the enormity of your job, and if you know that that is the normative experience, This is not just a rough patch. This is not just something that you've experienced because of COVID-19. This is a big factor in our profession. This is something we have to navigate. And we have to navigate it together. And we can't be transformed um, just by portable advice. I wish I could give you a three-point plan to make hybrid teaching simple and easy, but I just can't because the issue at hand is far bigger than just how you're going to design your class. So what do we do? Well, again, a lot of my references are focused in WPA work, uh, but they very much transfer to all of our ways of teaching. Um, so Cindy Morse calls for a um, a need to supplement a discussion of our ways of doing with attention to our ways of being. Um, So perhaps when you got up this morning, you thought a lot about all the many things that you needed to do uh, and what you were called to do as a teacher, as an administrator, as a spouse, as a parent. But how much time have we spent today thinking about our ways of being in the world? If we're going to do this work effectively, if we're going to try to do it for the long term, what if we spend as much time thinking about our way of being as we do our to-do list? What is this really about? We're going to think a little bit about ways of doing versus ways of being. And this is a really important topic for me to think about in a lot of ways because I grew up in a household where I was told on a regular basis, Lemures are not human beings. We are human doings. And so I grew up really, really believing this. Um, I was a doing, not a being. And so I had never really spent a lot of time thinking about life as something one is within, um, as myself, as a being. I really just thought about myself as what I was accomplishing. So what does it mean to think about our way of being as much as our way of doing. That's really important when we think about hybrid designs and all these different ways that we've been asked to teach in the last year. The word hybrid doesn't even mean just one thing anymore. Um, Is it asynchronous and synchronous? Is it half your students in the classroom with you, half your students online? Um, What is the nature of your hybrid experience? It's pretty complicated. So. At the heart of it, no matter what your hybrid design looks like, there is this juxtaposition between your way of doing and your way of being. Even within the hybrid environment, we want to think about both. Susan Miller Cochran, a couple of years ago in her uh, keynote for WPA, which was later published in WPA Journal, said, in order for us to move forward, to determine how we move forward, we have to know our guiding principles. And so in response, thinking a lot about what Susan offered and trying to decide my own way forward, I've thought a lot about what are my guiding principles and way of being is becoming one of those guiding principles. Um, So at this moment, I want to again pause and I want to invite you to ask yourself, what are your guiding principles? I'm just going to take a second and pause, and I want you to think about what guides your way of being as a faculty member. Susan Miller Cochran says, to identify those guiding principles, we might start with a question. What is your metaphor? And I love metaphor. Um, My students will tell you I'm obsessed with metaphor. And in fact, the dissertation that uh, Kevin spoke of earlier uh, that I wrote very much was driven by metaphor. At the time that I did my dissertation work, my chosen metaphor, as some of you in this room know, was guerrilla warfare. I spent a lot of time studying guerrilla warfare, guerrilla tactics, and what I learned was to see everything as warfare. Kenneth Burke taught us about the terministic screen, right? Um, so the terms I used shaped how I saw everything. Um, and so I think that we might do well to choose our metaphors carefully. I still rely on the gorilla quite a bit, but there are other metaphors that we might consider. This is a gazelle, slightly different metaphor. By the way, that was the G E U gorilla, not G-O, just to be clear. Uh, But this is a gazelle, and um, I think they're very cute, um, and I want to spend a little time talking about gazelles uh, as a metaphor for how I think me and many of my colleagues have a way of being in the world. So gazelles are known uh, for at least three things other than just being adorable. So first of all, they're known for speed. They can run with great speed and for great sustained period of times. I could bore you with the details of the specific miles per hour and all of that, but trust me, they're very fast and they have to be because things that like to eat them include things like lions and various other animals, right? Speedy predators. So they have to be able to run at really consistent speeds for a really long time. And a lot of us operate this way too. How many of us run at great speeds all the time and get surprised that we can't sustain that speed? How many of us sort of bully ourselves for our inability to maintain great speed? The next thing I'd like to tell you about related to the fine gazelle is the stop. So they do this really cool thing where uh, they basically jump up in the air, um, like all feet at the same time. They're much more nimble than I am. Uh, But when they stoat, that word also means to prance, right? And they're literally trying to jump up above others. They do this to impress both uh, others within their herd, and they also do it to impress their predators. So what they do is they try to jump up really high and show off, hey, I'm so nimble. I'm I'm going to be hard to catch. And how often do we do this also? This need to prance, uh, to strut, to to stand out, to stand above everyone else. Why? It's a protective agency, right? We're trying to stand apart. We're trying to rise above. Um, We're afraid of, of what will happen if we are not the most nimble in the crowd, The other thing that gazelles do is they stampede. Uh, Things start getting kind of nervy. And uh, not only do they take off running, but they take off running without a lot of organization. Um, Or maybe there is organization that I just don't understand. But what can happen within the stampede, within this this run to try to get to safety, uh, when something uh, that threatens their well-being has come, is they run without regard to one another. And so in this, uh, not only can they injure themselves, but they can injure uh, one another within their midst. So this is the gazelle running at speed, prancing to stand out, and stampeding with little regard to the others in the midst. You, my friends, are not a gazelle. I think we're conditioned a lot of times to act as though we are. We have this way of going, 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 always, not stopping. What happens if a gazelle stops, pauses, looks around, and asks, is this really how I want to be in the world? Well, they might get trampled. But we are not gazelles. We actually have uh, a little bit of an opportunity to pause and to ask Is this the best way of being in the world? The gazelle way of being is not exactly uh, my favorite metaphor at this point, though it is the one that I think I relied on for quite a bit of time. So there are a lot of other ways of being, a lot of other kinds of metaphors that we could use. And one that I started to come to um, after a period of time of saying I can't live like this anymore is the idea of the cycle Um, So I try to live a life now, um, very attuned to the idea of cycles and seasons. And so I'm going to start talking through why I choose seasons and cycles and and circles as ways of being in the world. I also really like this image on the screen as a way of thinking about cycles, um, not just as a Um, a simple circle, but as a complicated kind of cycle. So if you look within the the image on the screen here, there's lots of different ways in which one can loop around um, lots of variation uh, to the idea of a circle within this image. Uh, Again, I promised you music. So a lot of the lessons that I most needed to learn in life, I find in song. Um, And this song uh, by Harry Chapin has been in my head my entire life. Um, In fact, when I was preparing for this uh, presentation, I went and listened to Harry Chapin's version. And I found it so disturbing because I had never in my life actually listened to the recorded version of this song. My dad has been singing this song my whole life. um, And I was super unaware that Harry Chapin doesn't quite sing it the way dad does. But in any case, uh, the message within this song is clear. So he sings, there are no straight lines to make up my life. And all my roads have bends, there's no clear cut beginnings, and so far no dead ends. So what happens if I stop aiming towards straight lines in my life um, and sort of embrace the bends and Focus on trusting that there aren't going to be dead ends. There might just be turns. So, I kind of want to have my dad come in and sing at this moment. But so, this is really um, transformative for how I see the world when I really embrace the fact that circles and cycles are really more to, more to the way the world works uh, than straight lines. But we're kind of conditioned to see the world in straight lines. So if you take a look at the diagram here on the the screen, it looks at what human perception often does to our ways of seeing in the world. So although we're living on this planet that is spherical in nature, the way we look, the way our eyes condition us to see, we see things as straight lines. Uh, We look to a horizon. Uh, We're constantly focused on a destination that we'll never actually be able to reach. And so I've spent so much of my life trying to get to the peak, get to the top, that I haven't always paid attention to the fact that there isn't actually a top. And this is important because I, for so long, thought I was rushing towards um, a full you know, pinnacle. I wanted to get my PhD. I wanted to become full professor. I wanted to achieve certain things professionally. The higher you get, it's just, there's more life to live after you get to the top. So I really found myself coming to a place of, well, now what? There's still, once I reach the horizon, there's still more to go. And this is true for our semesters, too. Um, We think, I have to just get through this work week. I have to just get through this semester. But then what? There's another semester. There's another work week. There's another class to plan. So the more I saw things as straight lines, uh, the less satisfaction I found. I started to think about ways of being in nature and about a year and a half, maybe two years ago, I was preparing for a presentation at the conference on college. No, it was at CWPA, uh, the council of writing program administrators. And I started to have this theory that what if everything in nature really is pretty cyclical. Um, And I called upon uh, a biologist friend of mine who you'll get to hear from later this afternoon. Um, And I had this conversation like, am I crazy or is everything really cyclical? And we really started talking about it and thinking about the way that um, unchecked growth, pushing constantly towards growth, wasn't actually the pinnacle that I thought it was. Um, so even within the screen, I have this, this idea, this classic metaphor, of the butterfly, right? And so, you know, we have this way of being in the world where we don't want to embrace the cocoon life, we we're uncomfortable with the caterpillar stage. And we're all seeking the life of the butterfly, except you know what's next for the butterfly, right? Like, that's the end, right? Um, So what if instead of uh, pushing just for the end, uh, we started learning to plan for and embrace all the phases um, of the cycle? Enjoy the cocoon, in fact. Some of this reading um, or some of this thinking brought me to a book that I just love the title of because it felt so unfamiliar to me. Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing. Um, And about three years ago, the idea of doing nothing, which I now call meditating, uh, would have been completely unheard of for me. But Ginny O'Dell reminds us that in the context of health and ecology, things that grow unchecked are considered parasitic and cancerous. But we live in a culture that privileges novelty and growth over the cyclical and over the regenerative. But what if we didn't? What if we really embraced cyclical? What if we really embraced regeneration? To do so, it means we have to challenge our idea of productivity. As Ginny O'Dell says, our very idea of productivity is promise, or premised on the idea of producing something new, whereas we do not tend to see maintenance and care as productive in the same way. So if we think again about that butterfly um, metaphor, what if we see that time of care in the cocoon? What if we fi- find that the mundane, uh, just as important as the metamorphosis itself. And this is important because rest is important and rest is also uh, resistance. So um, the NAP ministry, uh, and if you don't follow this account on Instagram, I very much recommend that you do so. Uh, The NAP ministry uh, is really challenging a lot of the programming that we have related to grind culture, related to productivity, um, and really presents the idea of rest as resistance to capitalism uh, among other things. So we'll, we'll break into that in just a second. But this slide from uh, the NAP ministry says, there are no quick, quick tips to deprogramming from grind culture and crafting a rest practice in a capitalist world. Maybe that's part of the problem. We want quick magic bullets all the time. We will be unraveling for a while. The time to rest is now, any way that you can. So the NAP ministry was created by uh, Tricia Hersey, um, and she says, framing the, the framework for the NAP ministry, we are deeply committed to dismantling white supremacy and capitalism by using rest as the foundation for this disruption. We believe rest is a spiritual practice, a racial justice issue, and a social justice issue. Another slide from the NAP ministry says, Um, Perfectionism is a function of white supremacy. You can lay down. So a lot of times, if we think about life as cyclical, if we think about life as um, being something where, you know, within seasons, we have times of growth and we have times of great productivity. um, And then as we come into winter, we have times to pull within, to rest, to grow dormant. That is a natural order of uh, our universe. Uh, but that is not the natural order of capitalism. It is not what white supremacy has sold people. Um, so, the idea that embracing the full cycle and understanding that rest is, in fact, human, not weakness, is pretty countercultural. So, then we bring that to the classroom our ways of planning. So we know that time is cyclical, right? We have our clock here. Um, And yet a lot of times the way we plan our semesters does not acknowledge the fact that life is cyclical. So even contrasting the clock to the calendar, the clock is cyclical, but our calendars are rows and columns. Uh, And often this is the way we prepare our classes. So our classes from week one to week 15, they build and they progress and everything gets increasingly more challenging as we work towards the big payoff, the big capstone project. The stakes grow higher as we move through this linear progression despite the fact that as humans, we as faculty and our students, as as learners, we all need to embrace the cycle and we all need to understand that there are times for high productivity and there are times where the rest is where we will actually access uh, what we need to grow and to, to come into the next stage of understanding. So what if? What if instead of embracing this idea of linearity, this idea of more, this idea of uh, continually adding, uh, adding to our plates, what if we can stall the world as something more cyclical? What if we embrace the idea that there would be times within our work where we were highly productive and there would be times that we would be dormant and allow our students to have that also? What would that look like? To help us think about that, I'd like us to think about hybrid courses as ways of being. And so within our ways of being, within our design, the delivery, and um, within the people within the space, uh, I'd like us to think about um, what kinds of ways of being would allow a class design to be focused on cycles. What kinds of ways of being would allow a class delivery to be cyclical? And what kinds of ways of being would allow us to be human, fully human, not some sort of hybrid within our classroom? I wanna allow us some time to start moving towards reflection and discussion. The first thing to think about is our design of our class. Is your course designed for continual growth? Is your class sort of founded on the idea that students will constantly integrate more uh, and continue to add to what they understand? Or is there time for your course design to be as recursive as we know the writing process to be? How do you encourage students to circle back on their understanding. uh, To have times where they are not so much challenged but allowed to work on maintenance and care of what they've accomplished. Are there times where they're allowed to pull back and pull within or are we always pushing for more presence, more productivity, more signs of engagement? And then think about the delivery within the course time is your class designed for sustained attention? Often I find that sitting in a session like this is such a good reminder to me about how poorly I do at sustained attention. Last week I attended the 4Cs conference and I found myself doing 65 things as I listened to presentations. And the only reason I really got a lot out of some of them was because I could pause and start over again. So how is your your class designed to acknowledge the fact that students might benefit from times where they connect and times where they pull within, um, times where they can reflect and times where they can engage? And the humans. Is your course designed for a herd of gazelles? And if so, what does that make you? Are you one of the gazelles or are you a lion herding the gazelles, pushing them towards stampede? And you can ask the same question about your program, your relationship with your administrators, so many places to think about the gazelles. All of this attention to ways of being in the world, ultimately for me, spurs from Paul Heiliger's on genres as ways of being. Paul didn't invent the idea of genre or rhetoric as being a way of being, um, but his piece has a series of questions towards the end that really have shaped how I'm approaching the classroom right now and many other things that I do. So Paul asks, when students take up your writing assignments, the genres you assign, How do they need to be in the world? How does the assigned genre require them to emerge into the world? There's a lot of attention here, not just to what do students need to accomplish, but how do they need to be in the world? What are you asking of them in terms of ways of being? What are you modeling for them in terms of appropriate, effective, healthy, ways of being in the world. So that brings us to my question, ripped off from Paul, which I don't think he'll mind too much. When you design your writing classroom, you enact a way of being in the world. How do you need to be in the world to offer the course you've designed? How does the classroom design require your students to emerge into the world? And what ways of being does it encourage for you and for your students? So I get to hear myself talk all the time, but at this point, I'd love to pause to stop sharing my screen and to see you all and to invite time for discussion.
1: This podcast is produced by Sherry Spiegel, Paul Fitzgerald, and This Most Unbelievable Life. For more information, please check us out at www.thismostunbelievablelife.com. Paul and Sherry, have a
0: Paul's podcast. Podcast.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: Yes. Yes. Cool.